We've been in a series called Image Bearers for most of the fall, but it's coming to an end next week. I'm so excited about that. As we bring this uh, understanding of what it means to be created in God's image, uh, we're going to tie that to the teachings of Jesus and to some of the teachings in the New Testament and you know Jesus' role in uh, continuing to work in us to reflect God's image. And so that's how we're going to end next week. So I'm excited about how that's, where that's coming together. And uh, we also have a faith and work interview next week, uh, as a lot of people love uh, that because it just gives people a chance to see and hear you know, how people integrate their faith into their work and into their life. And so we have a really cool industry that we're, I'm gonna, just going to kind of won't even see it, okay? It's going to... We'll talk about it next week. So that'll be a small portion of our gathering uh, next week. And in terms of teaching, after Sebastian Demery's here the week after, we're, the week after that, we're going to jump into an Advent series, and we'll talk about that more next week. So that'll be great just leading us up to Christmas. Well, let me, let me jump in. Last week, we, had, uh, we started a two-part message within this larger series called Image Bearers, and we specifically talked about sexuality. And we, we highlighted the fact uh, out of the scriptures that God has created us all of us as sexual uh, beings. And, and so there's a sexuality component to who each of us are, male and female. And we talked last week about, we highlighted this way, that there's, there's beauty and brokenness in sexuality. There's beauty and brokenness in our sexuality. And we talked about how both of that is true. One, because how God has created us, but also... Uh, partly with sin in the world and brokenness, we have all, you know, just an admitted way we can say, yes, there has been brokenness as well in sexuality. And then we talked about the boundaries, that because of the beauty and brokenness, we looked at how the scriptures creates boundaries uh, for sexuality. And part of that was, we said it this way, boundaries exist to champion the beauty and to curb the brokenness. To champion the beauty and to curb the brokenness. And where we had landed uh, through the scriptures last week is that sexual intimacy fits within the context of a marriage. That's one of the boundaries we see in scriptures. And one of the hard questions we tried to look at last week was same-sex relationships and how does the scripture affirm or not affirm that? And, and it was a difficult topic to work through, but we looked at the boundaries throughout the scriptures this way and came to see that, that, that there's boundaries within heterosexual relationships around marriage. And we would see something similar, but even beyond with same-sex relationships where the scripture doesn't affirm same-sex relationship or activity. And it left us hanging about, well, what about same-sex attraction? And so that's how we landed last week. And, and it left us hanging because it's like, well, if, if we see this in an honest way, we're looking at the scriptures and say, well, we see the scriptures giving us boundaries. One, that sexuality or not sexuality as a whole, physical act of sexuality fits within the context of marriage between an, a man and a woman. And that boundary extends to saying that, um, that activity is not meant to be within a same-sex relationship, where does that leave us? And so we left hanging last week. So what, where do we go from there? If the scriptures have these boundaries, um, it leaves us with questions with friends and family members. And so I want to kind of split up last week and this week. And I said that I'd probably offend everybody within the context of two weeks. So people were asking me this week, who are you going to offend this week? And that's not my goal. My goal is not that. My goal, uh, like I said, is not to draw a line in the sand, but to one, look at the scriptures and then say, how do we wrestle with how to live this out? And so I would say last week is partly what I t- put in my mind. This is what I've learned And maybe it felt more concrete. This week is, I would say, more what I'm learning, where it might feel more fluid and open. 
And as we're walking this today in this maybe more fluid, open journey, where last week felt, hey, we kind of saw some conclusive ideas in the scriptures. This week, as we wrestle, I want, to, I want you to remember, one, remember everything from what I'm going to say today, at least remember, hey, last week we firmly planted ourselves in the scriptures. So we're not moving from that. But as we move forward today, we want to wrestle with what does it mean to live in love like Jesus? It wasn't a cliche when Jesus said, love your neighbor. It wasn't a cliche when Jesus told the disciples, love one another. He meant it. That was a strong um, ethic of Jesus, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's anybody we come into contact with. And also to love one another within Christian community. So loving one another is huge. Now, here's the thing. Knowing truth, okay, is one thing. And I think we tried to do that last week. Knowing truth and having the wisdom to live it out are two different things. Knowing something is true, knowing that that the scriptures have some boundaries around things is one thing. And that's something we hold dear to because we, we don't, we, we, we look at the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus for life and, and values. But then the other thing is having the wisdom to live that out. Well, that's a different, that's a different story. So we're going to try and wrestle with that today. But as we do, I want to read John 8. And, and I'm not going to unpack it at the moment. I just want to read it as a backdrop to some of the things I'm going to say and then come back to it later. And you might say, why John 8? You know, I, I really don't know. All week, God has just been like, putting John 8 in my mind. And I didn't feel I had to teach through it or you know, unpack it or go verse by verse, but I felt that, that part of it should be included today. So let's read it together as a backdrop. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, uh, commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this Those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are you? Or where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Father, as we uh, jump into this delicate topic again today, we ask you for your wisdom for the power of your spirit. Uh, Ultimately, we long to um, discern your truth and live and love like Jesus. Help us to see how all that works together. Um, And I just come humbly before you, God. I'm not an expert um, in in this specific topic, but I come humbly as as one who longs to serve you and um, serve others. Be present today as we walk through this. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to start here. Last week we talked about in Romans 1 how, how at times all of us in some ways are broken and we detour away from creation. 
And I want to just start with this phrase, and I won't be looking back because the screen's in front of me today, so I can't look back. I, I've been having fun doing that, but I won't do that. So if I start to twitch or turn, and you just like say, oh, poor Dave. But, um, um, but here's, here, here's often, often, and I don't say always, but often a de- detour from creation creates complexity. A detour from creation creates complexity in all the brokenness of our lives, regardless if it's sexual or not. However, the reality is that either the brokenness in sexuality or the struggle of same-sex attraction, if we're completely honest, creates what I'm going to call complexity. See, too often we want to sweep something under the rug and say, well, just love. And I had some good input from people this week around that as well. And I thought, well, it's not, it's, we don't need to neutralize something that we believe the scriptures are saying to love. I think it, it's harder and takes more courage to love in spite of or within the idea that God gives us truth. If we neutralize everything, and not just in terms of sexuality, then our love is not really that strong. I think love is more powerful when it's confronted with truth. It's huge. So I want to talk about complexity this way. And I want to, today I'm going to share a lot of stories um, and because I want, I want us to almost be left with the reality that this is complex. I've been reading a few books, and I came across the story of Tim Otto. He wrote a book called Oriented to Faith. And he shared his struggle uh, in this book. He was a missionary kid, grew up in missionary contexts, had parents who loved him, an amazing home spiritually, He loved Jesus and still loves Jesus with all his heart. Um, He loved the church. He loved his family. But before he was even in sixth grade, he recognized that he felt different than the other kids. And he had attraction to boys that he wasn't sure what to do with. And here is a young, young kid trying to discern this in the context, a healthy context that he was in. He, He writes these words, if there was any way I could have chosen differently, I would have. And after having gone to 15 schools by the time I was in sixth grade, I desperately wanted to fit in. I was uncoordinated, bookish, lonely, and beginning to develop pimples. And the last thing I wanted was another way of being different. And through his teenage years and young adult years, he continued to just keep this to himself. Until one day he went to a Christian college and... uh, he had a roommate he started to get to know well and felt comfortable and thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to venture out. I'm going to risk and share with my roommate what I've been feeling all these years. And he did. He shared this with him, that he had a same-sex attraction. Ironically, and I don't think that this statistically works out, but ironically, his roommate said, I feel the same way. They, his roommate encouraged him to seek some kind of counseling to possibly turn his orientation, but it didn't, it didn't work. It didn't work on him. And uh, he found himself one day in San Francisco, walked into um, an adult video shop for the first time seeing certain things that he never really explored before. And um, he had an experience there with another man. And it left him in one way saying, oh, maybe this is how I'm meant to feel. And in another way, he left with shame and pain. He di- and he didn't know what to do with it. He writes these words, Now, as then, I wish that somehow, rather than ending up in the arms of an anonymous man, I could have found myself in the arms of the church. 
I wish the church had communicated to me that it could be trusted with my deepest secret, with my sense of alienation, with my self-loathing. I wish in the church I had found myself loved. So I just leave you that story. I introduce you to someone named Andrew Marin, who, who grew up and he admitted that he just, you know, had definitely a conservative view of this in the scriptures, but also treated people of, with same-sex attraction horribly. He used bad, horrible words to treat them. And he had three friends, and, and, and he describes a story sometimes in a lighthearted way because he just didn't know how to figure it out. But he says one month after another, one summer, three of his friends tell him that, that they have same-sex attraction. Two of them were girls. And the other one was a guy. And he knew this guy from, the, from second grade. They were best friends from second grade. And in that summer, in June, one of his friends who was a girl told him. In July, another friend who was a girl told him. And in August, then he's sitting there and his friend says, I, I want to chat with you. And jokingly, he says, I bet you're going to tell me that you're gay. And his friend starts to weep. Starts to cry. And both of them sit there and cry in the car for an hour. For an hour. And that just confronts Andrew Marin and says, what do I do with this? I see what the scriptures say, and I, don't, I still believe that. And over several months, and even the course of a year, God put a mission in his heart. He said, I'm going to learn everything I can about the LGBT community because I still love my friends. And, and so he did that. He lived in Chicago, and uh, as a college guy playing uh, baseball in, in that area, he just decided there's a part of Chicago called Boys Town. Boys Town is known as the first official gay village in the United States. And he decided, he said, I'm going to go to Boys Town three, four nights a week. I'm just going to meet people. I'm just going to talk to people. And he would sit in, in gay bars and clubs and just hang out and talk. And he shares a, a, a story where he says, I was sitting in the corner of this bar and somebody came up to me and asked me, are you straight? And he said, yes, I am. And he kind of laughed and went away and gave some money to his friends because they were betting on him. They're like, I bet he's straight. You know, They figured that out right away. He shared that. But then he said, I felt I needed to keep going. So he would go week after week. And people would always ask him this question, why are you here? Why are you here? And it would turn into long conversations with several people. And he says that two things always came up in the conversation. Often, now think about this, this was, I think, the 90s, 80s and 90s. Often they ended up in tears sharing their life story. One thing that often occurred in these conversations. Secondly, they often connected a negative experience with, the, with Christians in the church. Often they would share one, end up, the conversation would end up in tears, sharing their life story, and secondly, they would have a nev- negative experience with a Christian of the church. And he never mentioned he was a Christian. I just leave you that. This is a learning morning, okay? Last week we learned, today we're learning. Isn't that complex? Would you admit that that's complex? That there's complexity in that? And it leads us to ask questions. You know, is same-sex attraction a choice or not? And that's a complex question and a complex answer. And we might never have the, the full answer for that. There's this whole debate about nature and nurture. Do, do, you know, are, is, that, is this something found in someone's nature or is it nurtured? 
Uh, Preston Sprinkle wrote the book that I highlighted last week, and he walks through much of, of science to help us understand that, that there's no answer, that, that, that in, in the American Psychological Association, they write this, there's no consensus among scientists about the exact reasons why an individual develops an orientation. No findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think that nature and nurture both play complex roles. And what happens is, on both sides of the issues, people will try and look for things to prove their side, and people will try and look for things to prove their side. But we see it's complex. It's complex. From anthropology, when you look at culture, one anthropologist, Pat Kaplan, says, what people want and what they do in any society is, to a large extent, what they are made to want and allowed to do. And sexuality cannot escape its cultural connection. Possibly that's true. But our goal today, my goal, is not to, to, to come up with some perfect argument one way or another. It's to understand that this is complex, whether it's nurture or nature or culture. It doesn't mean that we shrug it off, because we wouldn't do that in any other situation, right? If someone grew up and there are some scientific studies that show that alcoholism sometimes runs in the family, we wouldn't say that, you know, that just because someone has something, something that runs in their genes that you shrug that off. We wouldn't do that. If someone's prone, you know, you see someone's personality, they're always prone to get offended. We wouldn't say, oh, that's cool. Just, we wouldn't do that in that situation. But at the same time, it's complex. And there's more complexity because it makes me ask the question and and us to look at the scriptures, is attraction the same thing as activity? Tim Otto had discovered who he was and his orientation he specifically made a choice to remain celibate throughout his life, and he continues to serve God in the city of San Francisco in a small church community. But doesn't mean that his orientation has changed. So I wonder, I'm asking the question, if there's a difference between attraction and activity. James, in chapter 1, verse 14, and it's only, it's, I'll, I'll get it on my Bible, I was going to, caught me wanting to look at the screen. <laughs> um, James chapter 1, verse 14 says, um, you know, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And look at verse 15. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. There's a distinction James makes between desire and action. And I think if we take sexuality out of the picture, we can all say there are some things that we are just generally attracted to or desires that we have that we don't necessarily, we feel that we shouldn't act on. So the question is, is there a difference between attraction and activity? I think there is, but it's still a complex issue. And again, all of us in some ways um, have certain things about us that we would say, I don't know if I should, I don't believe I should act out on that but it's a complex issue. Here's another idea. What about acceptance versus agreement? This is difficult. When you, when you, you want to take a posture of acceptance, even though there's not agreement. And I think there's a difference between acceptance and agreement. Let me give you an example. And this blew me away this week. I came across an interview with Jim Daly. Jim Daly is the president of Focus on the Family. You know that organization, right? I mean, Focus on the Family is a Christian organization that literally exists to preserve the family, to help the family uh, um, grow, to help the family live out a life of faith in our culture. You know, Focus on the Family is one of the most 
I would say, Christian organizations in the United States and in North America. And Jim Daly um, thought one day, he, he came across the name of someone named Tim, Tim Trimpa. Tim Trimpa is one of the most prominent activists for the LGBT community. He's director of an organization, a nonprofit called the Gills Foundation, probably $20 million a year where they're advocating uh, on the behalf of, of the LGBT community. Jim Daly, despite what he sees in scripture, because he, he hasn't moved from that, he said, I'm going to give Tim a call. I want to get to know this person. So he calls Tim, and I think there are they're pictures on the screen. They, they have this interview. I'm listening to this interview, and here are two opposites in what they think about this issue. Same-sex relationships. But Jim reaches out to Tim. And they, when Tim gets the call, he looks at his staff and says, do you know who just called me? They're like, who? Jim Daly from Focus on the Family. Half of the room is like, <gasps> the other half is like, you should talk to him. <laughs> Nobody knows what to do. So he's like, well, I guess we'll just we'll talk. We'll get to know each other. And they start to talk and, and get to know one another. And it's interesting to hear them both talk because they both said, as we started to get to know each other and build a relationship, we both raised banners. You're never going to change my opinion about this. You're never going to change my opinion about this. But they started to get to know each other. They discovered one issue in Colorado that surprised them both. That it's one of the highest states in the, in the United States, one of the highest percentage of human trafficking. And it was an issue that they both felt something should be done about. So despite their differences on this one issue, they're coming to build a relationship together and they tackled an issue in their society that was a horrible issue where young girls are trafficked. Tim ends the interview and says, I just want to say something. And he says, last year I had to go to New York for a surgery to remove a tumor. And I want to say that there was one person I knew that one was praying for me, two was thinking of me, and three I knew I could talk to after the surgery, and that was Jim Daly. And I heard this, this conversation, I realized there is a difference between acceptance and agreement. We might not agree on certain things, but how do we learn acceptance? A couple of years ago, I was at a conference that was talking about this whole issue within our church denomination, and um, someone came up. He was a former engineer, grew up as an engineer, studied as an engineer, worked as an engineer, but later in his life became a pastor. He had four girls. This guy would have articulated what we did last week in terms of how we see the scriptures on same-sex relationships, but he had four girls, and one of his, girl, one of his girls left her husband and eventually got married to another woman. And she still had a nine-year-old daughter. So here is this guy, John. He's a pastor. He loves all his girls. And he's now confronted with the complexity of, I don't agree with your choice, but how you're still my daughter. How do we figure this out? He shares such a heart-wrenching story. His daughter eventually got married. And she called him a week before the wedding. And she's weeping on the phone. And he says, what's wrong? What do you need? She's crying. And she says, Dad, I know that you will not marry us. Like you will not stand before us and marry us, officiate our wedding. I, get, I understand that. But would you please say something at this occasion? And he just, he was complex. Didn't know what to do. 
in the end, and this is his decision, he, he decided to say something at the wedding. And he said these words as he shared this story. He said, at least in this family situation, he said, my girls are all my girls. I love them all equally. And he said, I see sometimes my role as a dad or as a family like a big oak tree that gives shade around me. And regardless of who's under the branches, everybody's going to get the shade. Everybody's going to experience my welcome and love and acceptance. And I thought that was such a beautiful metaphor of how someone's trying to deal with the complexity of this issue. James, in chapter 1, verse 19, says these words, and I think they fit well with how, we, how do we deal initially with complexity. James says everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And I think when we're confronted with complexity, it requires listening. Right? Uh, I think that's important. But it leads me to another thought. And it's this thought of community. That when we find ourselves in a complex moment, in a complex decision, in understanding how do we live out our faith, do we do that alone? No, we don't do that alone. We do that with community. And this next phrase I want you to consider is this. We deal with complexity in community. We deal with complexity in community. And I mean the community of the church because it's in the church that we wrestle with the scriptures, that we apply the scriptures, that we live out the scriptures, that we love one another, that we extend grace to others. So we deal with complexity in community. And as I was thinking about this, Jesus, think about this for a second. He, and I'm going to use the word whimsical. Jesus is the, mo- is the one we can describe with the most whimsical holiness. What I mean by whimsical is, here's Jesus. He's the holiest person around. The fullness of God dwells in him, Colossians 1 tells us. Holy, holy, holy. Three times holy, Jesus. But he had a whimsical holiness. How was it that Jesus, in all his holiness, in his deep convictions, in his moral ethic, which he had, he didn't didn't downplay that or omit it, He was able to calibrate conviction and compassion. He was our best model of calibrating conviction and compassion. He had no problem telling someone to stop sinning, and yet at the same time he was called a heretic because he loved so liberally. That was Jesus. We read the Gospels, we see that in the story of Jesus. And what amazes me about Jesus, he did so much of his ministry around a table. Today we celebrated communion that reflected what he started with his disciples around a table. Jesus' most ministry happened in community around a table. When he met the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus, tax collectors were known as cheats and corrupt. We hear about all the corruption going on in politics these days, right? And back and talk and this and that. Zacchaeus was known as one of the most corrupt guys because he led a team of other tax collectors that were corrupt. Jesus sees him one day. Zacchaeus is looking for him. Zacchaeus says, hey, I'm looking. Jesus says, come, let's go hang out at your house for coffee and cookies. Around a table. His disciple Matthew, when Matthew first starts to follow Jesus and Jesus calls his disciple, Matthew throws a party. Matthew's a tax collector and he throws a party with his tax collecting friends and the disciples and they hang out together around the table. You know, um, uh, one guy here at Westside, he's a mechanic for a helicopter company and we were talking yesterday uh, and he was telling me how he works with 13 mechanic guys every day. And he says, it can get pretty crude. And I said, oh, okay. And he didn't go on to describe it, but he was just telling me about that. And I thought, 
Matthew's friends were probably crude, maybe more so, corrupt in how they handled money and cheated people. They hung around the table with Jesus. Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding. A prostitute once crashes a a get-together Jesus is having with the Pharisees. And she comes in and she comes to his feet. She breaks her perfume jar, which was her resource for her business. She washes Jesus' feet. And that happens around the table. Jesus had this knack of doing ministry around a table. And I think the complexity of our lives and the complexity of living out our faith is best done around tables, not just tablets. Tablets give you a list. Tables give you a context to how to, how to live this out in complexity. The tablets are important, but the table fleshes it out. And it makes me think about this. And, and again, like I'm just throwing out a few things that I feel like I'm learning. Is Jesus' kingdom is often reflected as a family, right? One day there's going to be a wedding feast and all God's people will be joined together at this wedding feast. Jesus the groom, us the bride. The family of God, the kingdom is, is talked about as a family. And, it, and as I've been thinking about this, pro, this topic, it made me really question, do I have a deficit in my theology or understanding of the church's family? Is there some uh, pieces of, what it, of, 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 of how we encourage people to live out their lives of faith? Do we have a deficit around this? And maybe think about two deficits we have. The first deficit, which is beyond just this topic, is we have a deficit in our understanding of how to live a single life following Jesus. And I think it's true. We have this deficit in what it means to be single and following Jesus because often we just point people towards marriage. And I think marriage is awesome and I'm married and the family's important. But the church hasn't done a great job of, ex- of presenting an exciting vision around what it means to follow Jesus if you're single. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago that there's in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus talks about divorce and remarriage and the disciples say, hey, if that's how strong you're talking about divorce and remarriage, maybe none of us should get married. And Jesus says... That's an option. You can stay single. In my kingdom, singleness is valued. Right? It's, the kingdom of God doesn't grow by procreation. It grows by people stepping into faith. And so I think we've done a mediocre job of giving hope for what a single life can look like in God's kingdom. And that then relates to someone who would say, I'm a same-sex-oriented person. If we have a deficit in our theology around singleness, how would we encourage someone who feels they're oriented that way? And it makes me think about family. I love family. We need to build the family, and we need to encourage the family. But you, go to, you, you scan 15 church websites, and it looks like promo for a family sometimes. You, you, you look at that, and, and that's not bad. It's okay. We love kids. We have a Strong kids ministry. The family is important. Marriage is vital. We're not saying it's not. It's so vital. But I wonder if in our if we tend to idolize family at the expense of other vocations. See, over a hundred, two, three hundred thousand years ago, the family was an extended group of thirty, forty people. They were all together, living close. Today, it's two point three people living in a house that closes their doors in the weekends and doesn't see anybody. And we lift that up and say, this is, this, is, this is God's purpose for your life. 
Hang around with those 2.4 people for the rest of your life. Nurture them, fuel them, pay for their education, don't think of anybody else. And sometimes the church actually fuels that, not on purpose, but sometimes it happens. And I wonder if we've, if we've mistakenly had some selfish ambition and selfish self-preservation around this small unit of a family when for ages the family was an extended group of people and people who didn't, who didn't have the exact fit could all, but all fit in because they were family. And I think when Jesus talked about the family of God as the church, he, why he says singleness is a vocation because he says you have a new family now. You have a new family. And your family is there for you. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46, where, where Jesus is asked, and it's on the screen, I'll just paraphrase it. Jesus is asked, um, you know, he's in a party, and they says, hey, your brothers and sisters are looking for you. And he says, who are my brothers and sisters? And he says, oh, those are the people, the people who serve my father's will. They're my brothers and sisters and mothers. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, there's a new family. This new family is called my family. They're my brothers and sisters. My question is, do we live that out? Because each of us, in our own way, struggle to live faithfully following Jesus, and we can't do that alone. And Jesus' call to us is, you're now part of a family. And I think when we have a deficit in that, that makes it very difficult to uh, live out the complexity of the issue we're talking about today. When Tim Otto said, I wish that somehow, rather than ending up in the arms of that anonymous man, I could, found, could have found myself in the arms of the church. I don't know about you, but when I read that statement, it just, I know we, we don't, can't just put blame on the church for everything, but it, just, it broke my heart. I wonder, how do we become a church? A family. The word in Greek, adelphoi, which is the word that we often see in the New Testament as believer, many scholars would say it'd be better to be translated as brothers and sisters, not just believers, brothers and sisters. So when it's mentioned over a hundred times in the scriptures, that we would see it as a family. Tim Otto says, growing up gay, I struggled to think of the gospel as good news. But as I studied the New Testament teaching on family, I began to think family might be possible for me. I came to understand the fellowship of the believers when rightly practiced ought to resemble family. Tim eventually had a fork in the road in decisions. As he was discovering and becoming more open about who he was, but also following Christ and and trying to listen to God's voice in his life, He said this, he said, the path ahead seemed to diverge into two clear options. I could move to New York, cut off ties with my relatives and God, and pursue a gay relationship. Or I could sort out what it meant to be both gay and Christian by moving back to San Francisco to the little church community that was being formed by my missionary friends. And then he, as, he, as he wrestled, like many of us do in different ways, to faithfully follow Jesus, he was able to do that with family but the family of believers. Thankfully, Tim Otto eventually fell into the arms of of a loving church and a group of people that are also longing to follow Jesus together. I wish Andrew Marin's story of all the LGBT friends he met and the stories would have been different. Let me just, let me leave you with one thought before we jump back into close up with reading that scripture again is this. 
the Barna Foundation in the States, their research, uh, research organization, and they, they polled young uh, non-Christian people in North America, primarily in the States, and they asked, what's your perception of a Christian? That's what the question is. To, to like a 20-something, 30-something crowd, what's your perception of a Christian? You know what the number one answer came up as their perception of Christians in the church? Anti-gay. That was the number one answer. Number two was judgmental. Number three was hypocritical. And nowhere on the list did love come up in their perception of the church. I'm just, I'm just laying that out because it breaks my heart that, that, because like I said last week, we're not talking about this to draw a line in the sand. We're not talking about this to say we're for or against something. That's not the idea. But the perception of some people, the way some Christians and churches have acted, would, that would be their perception. Is, is that the first thing that people should hear about the good news of Jesus? That shouldn't be it. Is, it shouldn't be anti-anything when we talk that way or live out a life in following Christ. So as we, as we wrap this up today, think of John chapter 8, right? Here's Jesus, and there's this woman caught in adultery, and the Pharisees ask the question, hey, Jesus, according to the law of Moses, this woman should be stoned. Jesus knew the law. He lived out the law. He would have been a moral Jew, like any other moral Jew of the time. And they asked Jesus, basically, like, what, well, what do you say? And I mean, I think in our culture today, we would say, okay, let's, let's create a 10-point list of what this means. And here, that's our, here, this is our opinion. Jesus, like, I don't know, it's crazy. He stops, he looks at the ground, starts doodling on the ground and scribbling. I have no idea what he's writing. And then he looks up and says, um, well, those of you who... You know, have no sin, you can cast the first stone. And then he bends down and scribbles on the ground again. Who would, do, who, would, who would do that? I mean, we know Jesus did, but who would do that? The one who was able to calibrate conviction and compassion, the most holiest person around, knew the law. I, I just think about that. And then, he, then, he, then one by one, they start leaving and just ask the woman, so who's left? She says, no one's left. It's like, well, neither am I going to condemn you. Go and sin no more. And as, we, as I reflect on this story, think about this. Does Jesus approve adultery? Would we say yes or no? No. We would know that from other scriptures we read. We would know that from his understanding of the law. We would know that from how he lived and spoke. Jesus didn't approve adultery. We'd say no. Did he condemn her? No. He didn't. Does that mean, he didn't, he, does that mean he's okay with adultery? No. He, he would stand on his convictions. None of us could be, could be able to cast the first stone. Because none of us are without sin. In fact, Romans 1 last week puts us all into that pocket of sin. And there's something there. And then he points her to new living. He doesn't leave her there. He does say, go and sin no more. He does say, move forward in a new way of life. But he doesn't do it by condemning her. And in this conversation, I think his first step was a step of love, not a step of law. Because Jesus could have quoted the the Old Testament, quoted the law, quoted his own 
um, version of how he describes that, he, would have, he would, could have stepped out in law. But he didn't do that. He stepped out in love. Again, he's not, saying, he's not changing his mind on the topic. But he's stepping out in love. And he points her to new living. And that, why is that possible? It's possible because of this. For her in the moment it was coming. But for us in history we see it. The cross is behind us. And new creation is before us. And the cross has come against all our brokenness. To, to renew us and to regenerate us and to grow us into new life. And, but for now, in between the cross and new creation, could any of us say we struggle no more? Say no, we still do. Has God helped us in our struggle? Yes. Has God brought in healing or transformation in certain areas? For sure. But it's not new creation. We stand in the middle of the cross and new creation. And we struggle to faithfully live in that present time. And, and as we hear, we're going to wrap this up this way. Our mission at Westside is to point people to Jesus, right? Our core mission, the way we describe it, connect people to a growing relationship with Christ and each other. That's our mission. Our mission, interestingly enough, is not to change anybody's orientation. Billy Graham was once asked about this, and he said, he said um, the Holy Spirit convicts, God judges, my role is to love. And, and I don't think Billy Graham had a different view of the issue either, but he, has, he stepped out with his foot forward in love. Our mission, our core mission, is spiritual orientation, not sexual orientation, right? We, I think we'd agree with that. That would be the same with anything. We would say our core mission is to point people to Jesus, is to help them connect to a relationship with Jesus, and then this, to sit with, with people as they listen to Jesus, because at best, we can help people, we can help each other listen to Jesus, we can walk with each other as we listen to Jesus, and we can support each other as we listen to Jesus, right? And when that happens, Jesus starts to change us and work in us. And each of us then are responsible as we support one another to faithfully follow Jesus. And sometimes there's a cost to that. There's a cost to that um, for heterosexuals, there's a cost to that. For homosexuals, there's a cost to that. It always is a cost. It always rubs against something in our life. But our goal is spiritual orientation. Our goal with the cross behind us and new creation before us, we say let's be people who listen to Jesus and sit with others to listen to Jesus. And you'd be surprised at what Jesus does in people's hearts. And, and what Jesus does when he calls people to costly living for him and how he equips them to do that. Let's stand as we pray. Like I said um, this morning, a little bit more about what I'm learning and the complexity of this. I'm grateful that we were able to walk through some important pieces of this last week. It's so vital to stand on, on God's word, but then to move out and say, how do we wrestle with this together? I hope you sensed my heart in how we shared that this morning. Um, and I want to just say as we come to a close today, uh, you know, maybe you're in our church community and you would say, you know, maybe you're not saying it openly. Maybe you are, but that we're, you know, say, I, I, am, I have a same-sex attraction. And our goal, our desire is for spiritual orientation to be at work in your heart, to point you to Jesus. And that as you discover Jesus and follow Jesus, he will work in your life You've heard some of the struggles openly that I've shared today. With that, you can go back and listen to what we feel the scriptures say on that. That's not, that's not the point. The point at the moment is how do we help 
uh, anybody draw closer to Christ. We want to see that happen. We want to be a community that's, that helps people grow in Christ and hear the voice of the Spirit and be challenged by the conviction of the Spirit. And, and for everybody here today, we all need that. We all need to be, say, Lord, I'm open to how you're challenging me because I want my spiritual orientation to be following Jesus. And you know what? There's going to be a bunch of pieces of our life that God will say, that doesn't fit with where I'm leading you. That doesn't honor my heart. This is not best for you. Are we going to be people willing to call Jesus Lord and in any circumstance in our life say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I'll follow. Yes, Lord, help me work in this. Help me work this out. Help, I want to see transformation here. Are we willing to do that in all areas of our life? That's the heart. That's the heart piece of this. Let's pray. Father, um, yeah, in our, in our um, limited capacity and even time this morning, we, just, we welcome your wisdom. We, we welcome the conviction of your spirit. We welcome the light of your truth in our lives. We welcome the difficult call to follow Christ. I know for all of us here, there's one or two things even in our lives where you are prodding at. And you are longing to work in. May we be able to call Jesus Lord so we can follow you, wrestle through that. God, may we be a community that helps one another. And may we take this example of Jesus. God, give us the ability to reflect the conviction and compassion of Jesus. Give us the ability to be whimsical in our holiness. Give us the ability to stand on truth and yet love so liberally. God, that's, we admit, I admit, that's not easy. Not only in what we've talked about today, but in so many other areas of our life. So we ask you, Lord, help us to be more like Christ. And help us to be honest and uh, um, open to your spirit being at work in our hearts, always leading us to truth and love at the same time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.